Welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos. I am thrilled to have global futurist Mike Walsh back on the Banking Transform podcast. Mike's expertise in AI-powered organizations and his vision for the fifth industrial revolution offers invaluable insights for businesses navigating this rapidly evolving landscape of technology and knowledge. In this episode, we explore how generative AI is reshaping the future of work, the delicate balance between humans and machines, and the transformation potential of AI as the foundation for modern businesses through cognitive learning. The future is being rewritten by AI, but still led by the creativity of visionary and adaptive talent. The lessons learned today apply across all sectors. Obsolete skills matter less than learning new ones. In our discussion today, Mike Wall shares insights on how businesses should adapt to the AI-centric environment, stressing the importance of a radical cultural shift. The discussion will also cover the changing nature of employment and the essential skills required in an AI-dominated future, emphasizing the need for continuous learning and adaptability. So, Mike, you've joined us every year since our podcast started discussing how data, insights, and AI are changing businesses. Well, in November of a year ago, ChatGPT was unveiled, bringing to life much of what you had discussed through the years. How do you envision generative AI transforming the future of business and its operations beyond what was possible only 12 months ago? Uh, first of all, it's wonderful to be back on the show again, and I'm very honored to have been such a repeat guest. I have to say, though, I, I have mixed feelings about the fact that AI has become so prevalent now. It was a lot easier and maybe more interesting talking about it when less people were interested. Uh, but now, I think, as you mentioned, because of ChatGPT, uh, you know, it's had such an extraordinary take up. Everyone not only feels that they understand what AI is, they uh, I think quite a significant majority feel like they're also experts in it, which is which is quite dangerous. Yeah, and and I think we're really just at the very beginnings um, of you know trying to understand what an AI powered revolution might look like when when it comes to transforming organizations. And the reason for that is is that for for many of us, you know, generative AI is just you know has become a a tool for writing breakup emails, uh, rhyming birthday greetings, or summarizing memos you can't be bothered reading. Uh, Most people have really just begun to scratch the surface in terms of what it really can be used for, in in terms of not just uh, summarizing information in new and interesting ways, but really becoming an, an indispensable platform for generating breakthrough insights. You know, it's interesting because in, in a lot of your discussions you're on your website and articles you've written, you really talk about the ability for generative AI to build better personalization, build better dialogue, and, and actually, in a way, humanize things as opposed to making them simply more efficient. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see AI progressing, expanding the human capability and cognition rather than just improving efficiencies? Well, there's there's many parts to it, and I, I think this is a fantastic question uh, and way of framing it because uh, you know one of the biggest traps of any form of technology, I think, is to take what we do today and try and do it ten percent better. Uh, in, in that, that's the easiest business case to always make if you're trying to justify some some new spend. But it's the most dangerous thing to do when when it comes to a, a kind of a fundamentally disruptive 
paradigm transforming technology like like artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, AI, I think uh, today is, is already giving us the means to not just you know, speed up our existing workflows, but to really reframe the way we think. And I kind of think, call this metacognition, you know, thinking about thinking. And, uh, you know, in in our previous discussion, we were talking about how we both use generative AI tools like Claude and ChatGPT. You know, the way to use them is not to generate content, but to actually become a sparring partner, um, become a cognitive assistant, to actually uh, challenge the work you've done, to get it to read it, to give you a a kind of some constructive feedback, to kind of push your writing, your thinking into new directions. If you're just asking it to, you know, write a a kind of six-paragraph essay on a particular subject or an article, and that becomes your product, then really what you're doing is just taking the average result of, of, of a particular thinking in an area and, and trying to submit it as your own. That, that is not breakthrough thinking and it's certainly not improving productivity. Where I think things are going though next is going to be much more interesting. And that is really thinking about AI as uh, not just an extension of ourselves, but as an autonomous agent who can undertake complex planning, thinking, um, uh, tasks in the real and virtual world. And when we start seeing generative AI in that form, that's when things are start will start to really look quite different from what the way they are today. You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation, Jesus, about six months ago with Brian Romley, and we got into this discussion about how, could generative AI actually be your individual agent? We're, we're taking banking as an example and saying through the questions the the tool can ask, through capturing the answers that it gets through transactions, behavioral trends, things from outside and inside the financial institution, could this become your agent at the financial institution that could build better go-forward solutions on a personalized basis? And in other words, if done well, and if done with continuous interaction with the client, could it actually increase trust as it builds and remembers things you said? So it does what humans are meant to do and can still do in conjunction with the the tool, but can it actually build separate units, separate agents in each transaction for each customer build in a way that is simplest? Um, Do you see this as a possibility? No, absolutely. I, in fact, I, I would go further and say it would be insane if it doesn't. But but I think the key to understanding this is that it's not just a bank that will have a virtual workforce of agents that are, uh, in a sense, an extension of their call center or their human agents. Individual consumers and professionals will have their own digital twins, uh, their own digital doppelgangers. And this is where you really get the the hyper personalization. It, it is you're not relying on the bank or the financial institution to to have that. You're actually relying on your own highly trained, um, high, highly autonomous personal digital extension of yourself. And this agent will absolutely uh, be reading your emails, be writing your correspondence that you know isn't mission critical. Uh, we'll be applying for bank loans, uh, credit cards. We'll even maybe go on job interviews. Uh, it, it'll it'll essentially be your consigliere uh, in 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 the digital world. And because of that, uh, we're going to see consumers trusting their data to be used much more because they'll actually have control over this agent. 
And if you want to see like a preview of what that's going to look like, uh, you know, one of the most interesting devices to come out of CES was the the Rabbit R1. Uh, I'm not sure if you came across it. It it, it kind of looks like a it was incredibly designed. It's like this little red thing. It's it's, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a phone that isn't a phone. And and the idea was is that they wanted to build an a device that was natural born in the AI era. Rather than a large language model, they call it a large action model. Because what the rabbit does is it actually learns how you use particular apps, whether it's calling an Uber or ordering food, um, maybe in the future opening up a bank account. And it has a little camera that watches how you, how you do it. And then it actually acts like you on those apps, um, you know, through as kind of a secure tunnel in the cloud. So this is sort of a personal version of robotic process automation that we've saw in the enterprise for years. But what it allows you to do without these app developers creating sort of a whole complex LLM model themselves or building, you know, their own APIs, it really allows you immediately to kind of create a digital twin of yourself that's acting um, you know, on, on anything that can be done on an app today. So this is the beginning of a world, I think, where we will start to see AI acting as this sort of digital personal agent. You know, it's interesting because, again, when we were talking about it in the banking world or in the world you just mentioned, it's also the questions that are asked, the, the testing that goes on automatically. You know, we, the first the first tests of gener- uh, ChatGPT and other generative AI tools, you realize that it's not simply asking a simple question and getting a, a really complex answer. You, The more specific, the more unique your question becomes, the better the tool becomes. And, it, and it's interesting because in your world also, where you have this digital twin, you can actually set up different digital twins with different identity authorizations as well, correct? Where, of okay, I want I want this agent to know everything and share everything with everybody. In this case, I want my identity not to be as full, not to be as robust, but I only as robust I need for for this purpose. And it, you know, that that's where I think the trust issue is so big in the whole generative AI and in the AI tools where organizations have questions about it, governments have a question about it, humans have a question about it. But it's really about that learning process that that is the key to that trust element, correct? And it also, what I'm wondering, because I think you mentioned this in one of your recent articles, it can change the value proposition from simply monetary exchange to having values for risk, having values for how much it knows, having value for, for how quickly you can get to the answer base, correct? It really changes everything. I, I, I mean, I think people tend to anthropomorphize AI, and this, this is where everything gets confusing. Um, you know, it, it, isn't, it, it isn't so complex to imagine an agent only be able to speak about certain things to certain types of digital entities. Um, in a sense, the, the idea of having Chinese walls in, in memory. So, you know, w- the things it says to a, a, a potential Tinder date, you know, where the AIs yeah. are talking to each other, right. uh, is very different to when they're talking to a financial institution, you know, uh, trying to prove creditworthiness. Um, not that the bank wouldn't be fascinated in some of your Tinder discussion, because it could probably build a more complex model of your risk behavior uh, using that information. But it, it would potentially uh, you know, break a whole bunch of you know credit reporting rules, and 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 it becomes even more important with medical data, right? Like anything that's you know right HIPAA HIP compliant. So so I think compartmentalization of data is going to become 
you know, de rigueur, very normal, very quickly. Uh, but I think, you know, when it comes to AI regulation, uh, this is the, the point you're referencing. These virtual agents, let's be very clear, are highly unlikely to be self-aware in any respect. In fact, I would argue, um, although they could do a very good job of uh, responding like us, they will not be us. And if in the, under any circumstances, it started to appear that these things were in any way self-aware, I would say we'd have a moral duty to actually delete them. Uh, because frankly, they would be non-useful at the point where you actually need a psychologist to get these things to work properly. Um, so for me, the the non-cognitive awareness of these agents is what makes them useful. We don't want digital versions of ourselves that are in any way self-aware. So that's interesting. When you look at organizations today, you have some that are buying all into AI tools and ChatGPT and generative AI. Then you have those that are the exact opposite extreme where they're they're not buying into till it's all proven, which is interesting concept. What is the difference and how do you see the marketplace looking right now with regard to building from an AI foundation? And for those organizations that can actually maybe start reorganizing the organization around AI, what kind of advantages they have yeah. versus those that are waiting for the test to be tested. Well, Jim, I, I think you've got to take a step backwards and go, what is the point of being an AI-powered organization? And, and for me, the only point uh, is not to make uh, you know, Microsoft shareholders any richer. The point isn't to try and consume more of the coolest product. Or, and, and I think that the benefits of putting out a press release to say that you've got a generative AI strategy, that kind of expired nine months ago. So you know, just being the latest person to do something with generative AI is a bit like doing something with the metaverse a year ago, right? Like yeah. you, you got a little bit of kind of kudos for it. Now you look like a moron. Um, so uh, I, I think the only reason that you would embrace AI is because you've got a coherent plan for increasing your enterprise value. So my, my theory is that uh, in the next 10 years, there's going to be a very stark definition in terms of winners and losers. And in, in the old days, the distinction was between technology companies and traditional companies. So uh, a traditional the world. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but I mean, you'd value a traditional company, whether it was in agriculture or logistics or manufacturing or consulting on some kind of reasonable, um, you know, uh, multiple of EBITDA, right? <laughs> you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't rocket science and, and you could kind of haggle over that, but it, it, it was kind of a fairly established number. In the digital world, who knows what these numbers were? I, I mean, some of these digital companies, even now, like if you look at some of these AI valuations, I feel like they're just multiples of how many um, Xbox <laughs> that the kids have got in the rec room, right? Like yeah. they're, they're just making up the numbers. But I think it, this is going to shake out in the next few years. And you're going to have, in even very traditional industries, the difference between companies that are fully AI leveraged and those that haven't. So there's going to be a, an AI leveraged player in agriculture that's going to have a valuation that might be similar to Tesla. You can have something similar in life sciences. You can have something similar in logistics and financial services. Just like Tesla is, you know, an outrageous valuation for an automotive player, but it's because people said this is a AI-powered version of an automotive player. Although, you know, that that 
to the degree to which Elon Musk plays along with that may depend on whether they give him more stock or not. Right. So th- this is this is the kind of dynamic I think that's going to play out in every industry. So if that's the game that is worth leaders playing for, then the next question is, well, what makes a company truly AI-powered? And and for me, it comes down to four factors, which is scale, speed, sustainability, and scope. And, and, and these are the kind of areas where these AI organizations, regardless of their sector or field or market, are going to seek to differentiate themselves. So with those components of a successful AI business strategy, how does an organization who's, I'm going to say a legacy, and we can define it any way we want, where do they go upon moving that step? Because those four, well, there's four components that are all understandable. They're also can be overwhelming seeing where we are today. Where does an organization start and how do they succeed in the short term as they move toward a, a larger perspective going forward? Well, I think the, the question, the, the kind of the starting question that any leader in any organization, regardless of industry, has to ask themselves is, you know, whatever investment we're making in AI that we're planning, how are we changing the system of work? And when I say system of work, I mean the the kind of the process by which we create and deliver value. Uh, if, if we're just kind of deploying a chatbot uh, for customers to screw around with or you know for people to ask interesting questions and generate reports, is this actually changing fundamentally the way that we we design and deliver value? And, and if it isn't, then 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 honestly, you're you're unlikely to move the needle on valuation. Uh, and, and you know, in previous industrial revolutions, uh, there's always been the winners and losers in the same way, that the people that took that disruptive innovation, whether it was steam or electricity uh, uh, or computation, and were able to actually not just do what they did before a bit better, but to actually do something new and different. Uh, to change the underlying economics. Uh, this is what Henry Ford did, you know, when if you look at the Highland Park facility. It wasn't that he just uh, used electricity and kind of electrified his manufacturing process. He goes, well, actually, how can we redesign the manufacturing process? What should a manufacturing plant look like now that we have electricity? Can it be more decentralized, more distributed, more agile? And, and and these are very, I mean, these are very 2023 kind of phrases, but it, it, this is his genius because if you go back into the, the kind of 1930s, this is how he was thinking in very 21st century ways of how this disruptive technology changes the way we work. So when you say that, then it really gets down to the winning organizations will be those that can reinvent what their end product is, but in a brand new way. Because as you said, simply electrifying what you had in the past just gets you more faster, doesn't necessarily make it better. Yeah. So, you know, it's going to take leadership and culture to really rethink what you're delivering and how you're delivering that. And that really takes complete relearning internally, doesn't it? It, it does. Um, I, I mean, because you're really changing two things at the same time, which is difficult. Uh, it's a bit like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. Because uh, you're, you're, you're not only changing what you make, uh, you know, really turning your product into a platform, essentially. You're, you're changing how you make it as well. Uh, and, 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 and really, you need to be able to do both. Uh, so uh, this is really, I, I think, 
difficult for people to conceptualize. And and when people do it, people use that as a metaphor. I mean, if you go back, you know, to the early origins of Uber, people will ask themselves, well, how do we do the how how do we become the Uber of X? You know, like how do we do what Uber did, but let's do right. it in a completely unrelated field. And they kind of missed the point. The point was not that Uber was a template. The point was the process by which Uber became Uber. Uh, someone said, okay, there's a new emerging market for this, which can be, which means we can use technology and computation and the internet and smartphones uh, to basically do something in a completely new way. But they didn't just do that. They changed the way that the organization was set up, the way they used data, the way they scaled, how they um, moneyballed regulation. I, I mean, not all of it was completely ethical and, and, and it didn't always make it a great place to work. But essentially, they were doing those two things, reinventing the product to the end consumer and changing the design of the organization and how it interacted with the ecosystem. So when you when you look at that and you look at where we are today, what are the biggest challenges that you're seeing as organizations try to transform from simply being digital and being, let's say, fifth generation um, aware, the, the personalization, the engagement, the interaction, What's going to be the biggest challenge that gets in the way of that transformation? Look, the, the biggest thing everyone's facing now is, is scaling up. Uh, I mean, I, I think if you weren't doing some kind of generative AI pilot in the last 12 months, you, 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 you either were living under a rock or you're being deliberately obstinate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and you're right. There is a whole bunch of organizations who are quite rightly terrified of what's going on. Uh, and there's a bunch of leaders who are hoping they can retire before it's on their plate. Uh, and 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 for those people, let's face it, when this thing becomes something that is as prevalent and as acceptable as social media, then it's probably almost certainly already too late. Uh, so th- you should have been using the last 12 months to basically be flexing your experimental muscles to kind of learn what you don't know and, and to try and understand what your your organization's absorptive capacity is. And when I mean absorptive capacity, how, what is the kind of the, 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 the kind of the, the flow rate by which new ideas can penetrate your organization and new ways of learning. So hopefully you've, you've figured out, uh, you know, what that capacity looks like in the last 12 months. Now, mm-hmm. in 2024 and beyond, you should be thinking about scaling that up. You know, how, how do we actually take those experiments, those pilots, those projects, and actually do something which, really transforms an end-to-end workflow that changes the design of of, of, a, of an entire division that is the basis or, or the kind of the fundamental technology behind a whole new customer-facing platform. That should be your, you know, your play for this year. So it's interesting, you know, we when we went to the digital phase and we're still nowhere near done with that, <laughs> but when we went through that, there was a real change in the marketplace where the consumer really got control of what they wanted and had examples out there in the marketplace that said, why can't you do it like X, whatever that X company was? And, you know, we we see organizations saying those same questions, but the consumer has really been driving their expectation level and and COVID amped that up. But when you're getting to this next phase, where will the consumer feel this first and put pressure on every organization to perform in a way that's similar to the leaders? It's a great question. And, and you, you kind of can think of this broadly as the, the 
the consumerization of of experiences and this has been a journey i think we've been on for at least 30 years uh, uh, consumers discover smartphones and they wonder why the corporates give them these ridiculous devices that that they don't they can't do what they can do at home uh, and and then we have bring your own device and it kind of transforms enterprise it uh, consumers discover you know the amazing world of cloud-based entertainment apps like spotify and netflix and they wonder why is not all experiences like this right. you know uh you know whether it's uh, banking or insurance or or, or or transportation so in these kind of cutthroat dynamic consumer markets where experience is everything and personalization drives profits uh you win or lose depending on the uh, your ability to deliver these world-class experiences Often in the enterprise world where things are sold more slowly and there's lock-in and uh, a kind of a, an inertia and a, 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 a blind, a willful blindness, you know, to the end consumer or customer, it can take longer for these things to percolate. So that's been a like at least thirty or forty years we've we've seen that dynamic. In this new AI revolution, what we're already seeing is people are realizing the power of being able to ask a question and get an, and get an intelligent answer. And so this changed overnight people's expectations of now dealing with um, contact centers, uh, with 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 corporate chatbots. Uh, it's 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 becoming obvious that you're talking to something highly intelligent like ChatGPT or Claude, and then you go to a standard chatbot and it's like talking to you know, someone with a with, 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 who's voice had, prompts. Yeah, yeah. It's like it, it's like so. It's like talking to a digital entity with a lobotomy. You yeah. know, uh, who, who, <laughs> who, who, something who's, to think about. Yes, who's, who's not only like inanely stupid, but seems intent on directing you down a a whole rabbit hole of 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 banal irrelevance. Right. This thing is designed to actually. Uh, make it impossible for you to answer your question or complete your task. It's designed as a, as a barrier, you know, for you, for you to get something resolved. So I think this is where um, the, the kind of the next level of where customer expectations are sitting. And it's already a big challenge for organizations. I mean, there's these hilarious stories that are already emerging about people that manage to, to buy a, 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 you know, a brand new car for a dollar. You know, because someone's um, someone's gamed, you know, uh, Chevrolet's chatbot, or, or or a or a kind of a delivery service that can write you a limerick but can't tell you where your parcel is. So, <laughs> you know, you, you hear these stories yeah. and they, these corporate posts. Right. Well, we tried it; it didn't work. We've disabled the service. Oh, exactly. We, it, it, the good old it, it didn't work. It yeah. wasn't not yeah. on our fault. Well, it, you know, it's interesting, Mike. You know, I had a situation recently with. Uh, uh, Delta Airlines, and I've uh, because it ends in a good way. I I don't have any problem mentioning them, but you know they they have chatbots, they have website listening tools, they have different mm. um, social media listening tools, and they have humans, and the integration of those is not as easy as it seems because. In every one of them, they're each trying to perform well by asking the right questions. And they did that very well. In fact, the humans on the airplane asked the right questions. But they each came up with completely different responses or no responses because of what didn't fit in the model that they wanted. So I don't think any of the tools they used were bad except for that the fact that they lead you down a path and go, oh, by the way, we can't give you this answer to actually land. Oh, by the way. What we meant by land was at your final destination, but it's not spelled out. 
Well, then at the end, a human calls me and the human brings it all together and says, it appears that you've been using every tool we have available to get an answer. It also appears that we're not really, we're asking all the right questions. In fact, we're asking it every single time, which is, has to be frustrating, but we're not getting you to an answer. Well, I've looked over your entire case. I've looked over the discussions you've had. And we've come up with a solution that we think might be good. And they told me what the solution was. And it was a complete refund on an overseas trip. Well beyond what I ever expected or even came close to asking for because it wasn't that big of a problem. But doesn't that kind of look at the, the challenges of integration of channels, but also the importance of a human aspect to what we're doing in an AI world? Yeah, I mean, there's there's actually so many interesting parts of that story. I, I mean, the one thing is, I, I think that they actually got a bargain by just giving you a refund because you you, you clearly probably should have got extra for for helping them train their model to be more effective. I mean, they were using you as a basically as a human guinea pig for their <laughs> for their for their, for their embryonic generative AI platform. And they may have also in the past where I say, you know, I get in front of a whole lot of people. And if it's a good story, I'm going to mention it. And if it's a bad story, I'm going to mention it. And this story that starts off bad gave a great example of what goes wrong where we have these silos still. We have these old-fashioned silos that try to do things the way we've always done. This is, I mean, this is in a nutshell, the the big challenge with generative AI today, which is that it's it's very good at keeping uh, humans uh, deceived of the under, of the of the deeper capabilities of a system because you feel like at a very surface layer you're dealing with something highly intelligent um, but what we are not so good at doing is empowering or plugging that intelligence layer into the ability to plan uh, to segregate uh, to kind of um, take action uh, even in the digital realm on those insights it gleans from us and probably for good reason because you, you know, we, 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 we aren't able to audit these things effectively enough to really know that we can trust it with, you know, issuing a refund, selling a car, writing an insurance policy. We're more comfortable with more deterministic systems, you, you know, with that, because we can actually go and say, if the following rules are met, the following things can happen. But when we can master those highly probabilistic, statistical, human-like uh interfaces and we can combine it with those more deterministic solve problems take action be accountable that's when the real magic is going to happen you know in terms of creating a a digital workforce that transforms experiences for customers yeah it's, it's very interesting because at the end of the day when you look at where the world seems to be going the 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 winners are going to be those that can show empathy in a way that says you look beyond simply the transaction element of what we're talking about, which is it's hard to do. But as you just mentioned, if you take all the data that I have available in my interactions with this company and you use it, that empathy seems to come through and trust comes with it. You know, I, again, I mentioned, as my team knows, I mentioned the experience I had in Amsterdam being picked up by Uber. And on the way to the hotel, it, it gives me examples of things I can order to have my meal brought in. And it's all in line with what I've ordered past with open table. It then says, well, if you don't want this, these are restaurants nearby. And it also uses where I've gone in the past with them to say, here's some events you may want to see or things you may want to do. It's relatively simplistic, but it takes it out of the transaction 
and into the yeah. engagement. And it takes it when, at the end, you you almost get enthusiastic about what the next step could be. I've got to be frank with you, though, Jim. I, 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 and I know this is where we're going to go to some extent, um, but I'm terrified of the idea of equipping these these um, programmatic platforms with too much empathy because I honestly don't think we can handle it as a human species. We, we are so uh, lonely and disconnected and alienated that the minute that a, a machine somehow need, knows a little bit about us and offers us a warm cup of tea, you know, we're literally going to either burst into tears or fall in love. Uh, you, good, good point. Empathy uh, may be the wrong word. You know, because of the human the, aspect. Yeah, yeah. The, the the ability for manipulating, you know, hairless apes with a little empathy, it just yeah. cannot be understated. People are so worried about election interference and deep fakes, they forget just a little bit of kindness connected with a massive amount of data uh, will 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 literally turn us into like. Um, like sobering blobs of flesh, like we're we 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 are utterly screwed at that point. Uh, I would I would much rather cold efficiency from my bots um, because at least I know where I stand. And then give me a human being, you know, when things screw up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not sure if I'm leaving on a good note or bad note right now, but let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So I'm joined today by Mike Walsh, futurist and CEO of Tomorrow. We've been exploring the challenges, opportunities, strategies, and tactics that will define winners and losers in the world of generative AI. So Mike, you know, before we were talking, we were talking about all the things in the, in the AI world and where generative AI moves us. But you've written recently, and you also had a great podcast with Deloitte talking about the fifth industrial revolution. Can you talk a little bit about what the fifth industrial revolution is and how it differs from the previous four? This is an area of some debate and controversy, but but I believe we've had four industrial revolutions to date, and they are uh, steam followed by electricity, computation, uh, then smartphones and, and, and the web. And there's some argument about uh, the beginning dates of those and whether that was the key technology or not. But I, I think there's no doubt that really we're now in the midst of a fifth industrial revolution, which is that powered by artificial intelligence. And, you know, in each of those prior revolutions, there was something being optimized, some kind of efficiency. You know, in the earlier years, it was productive uh, efficiency, then it was computational efficiency. And arguably now, it's really about cognitive efficiency. So the fifth industrial revolution for me has, you know, many attributes. Uh, some people talk about uh, the fact that it's more human-centered. Other talks about takes account and uh, other externalities like the environment and other stakeholders. But the pivotal part of me, if you if you take that lens of cognitive efficiency, is how do we most effectively deploy both human and digital resources working together in order to be able to increase our capacity to make smarter decisions at scale? And 
you know, in, in prior industrial revolutions, like the fourth industrial revolution, which was sort of famously announced at the World, World Economic Forum, uh, this was the Internet of Things, digital factories, um, robotic process automation. A, a lot of the focus was how do we take our existing capital and and really make it work more effectively? Uh this worked, I think, but but not to the degree that we hoped. I mean, I mean the shocking statistic is, you know, since uh, 2004, uh, the kind of productivity rate in the United States has has essentially been half, has been growing at half the rate that it did for the 30 years following World War II. Uh, something is going wrong with productivity. For all of these new tools, for all these new technologies, all of these platforms, these investments in, in cloud and everything else, we are simply not as productive as we should be. And I think the reason for that is we have not been putting enough attention and focus on the question of human beings. How do we make ourselves smarter? How do we become more productive and useful? Uh, how do we design jobs that are not only uh, better paid, but more interesting, the kind of things we would want to do? And, and this is Fortunately, uh, I think the beginnings of a, of, a, of a new revolution that's going to change hopefully all of that. So that said, you know, when you talk about the cognitive nature of things and, and actually the ability to multiply our, our, our understanding of things with the help of AI, um, the, the concept of you can run take a horse to water but you can't make a drink hits <laughs> that you know when you have people very much like the manufacturing era where they they people knew how to do x but they really didn't want to or have any desire to move to y or x plus y whatever it may be how do we actually leverage that i mean in a perfect world everybody wants to learn more and be able to deploy it in a in a better way that's better for me and for the people I work for. But how do we do that? I mean, because not everybody, you know, people are scared of change. I mean, we see that in, on certainly in the first of the year, every year when people make resolutions. I, I think people are frightened of change. I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is linked to age. Uh, yeah. Uh, people's willingness to do things differently, unfortunately, gets harder, you know, a bit like exercise as you get older. Um, and I think for people, this is a really important lesson for leaders because, you know, one of the most important things that we always talk about leadership, about, you know, agility and, and learning actually meets a kind of a natural cognitive resistance as you get older, because it's not that you are incapable of learning, you're terrified of, of, of what that means for your current, the current things you know. And this is the probably the biggest thing that we didn't expect to happen, which was that when we talked about AI for the last 10, maybe even the last five years, we really thought the target of the AI disruption of work was going to be blue-collar work. Uh, people uh, driving trucks, stacking shelves, working on factory floors. And of course, these are, these are jobs that are going to be impacted in some ways. But the horrible news that is often difficult for people to accept it's actually often cheaper to have human beings do that work than get a very expensive industrial robot to do it. It's much more impactful economically to go after the people with higher salaries. And these are middle managers. These are, yep. I hate to say it, knowledge workers, uh, people who've got high degrees of experience and training, certification, registrations, um, uh, licenses, uh, people who've got years of experience doing a particular thing. It is much more impactful to replace those people uh, because they're already very expensive. And 
what this means, I think, is that the the kind of concept of a knowledge worker has to change. A knowledge worker used to be someone who knew things. But in this new environment, a knowledge worker is someone who's able to learn things, uh, who can leverage these new platforms like AI, whatever the latest version of it's going to be, who use it to become kind of a sparring partner in, in driving their their kind of their 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 edge of knowledge frontiers beyond, uh, never keeping them static. So the very thing which makes us terrified has to actually be our raison d'etre, I, I think, in the future. So that said, what industries, what segments of industries do you see embracing the concept of the fifth industrial revolution and, and generative AI and what the potential is the fastest? Which, who are going to be the first movers as an industrial segment? Well, arguably, unlike you know previous industrial revolutions, which were heavily focused on manufacturing, the fifth industrial revolution touches all of us uh, because it is it is really about that kind of new uh, collaboration between humans and machines. So it doesn't matter whether you're in agriculture or industrial design. Um, uh, complex information industries or in a t entertainment, uh, life sciences, uh, anywhere where you've got some kind of complex data or information, whether it's a creative task or discovering a new molecule um, uh, or, or the legal profession or the finance profession, they're all going to be changed in different ways, but at the same level of impact. Um, so Unfortunately, it's still early days, I think, for almost all of these industries. But I think particularly the ones where there's a high degree of knowledge required, these are going to be the first in the firing line. Uh, and this is already starting. You know, uh, There's already been massive changes in, in the employment base in financial services. This is already starting. Um, a lot of it was done under the cover of a potential recession, but, but make, you know, uh, you know, be under no delusions about it. AI, AI is driving this. It's already happened in the technology industry. Um, the, uh, all the massive hires that were made, especially around sort of mid-level managers you know, during um, uh, during COVID where uh, basically Zoom meant we had sort of a proliferation of people whose job it was was to check on other people were doing their work or not. All those people have now been, been laid off and they're gone. Um, so in any sort of area where there's a high degree of complexity of knowledge and data, already I think, even though these tools haven't hit prime time yet, leaders are asking themselves, are we at the right scale for an AI-powered era? So that said, you know, I think most people in the world today are worried about being replaced by the machine, the, the AI tool, whatever it may be. How do workers prepare themselves for the future to make sure they're part of it as opposed to being on the outside looking in? Well, I, I think, you know, I, you have to sort of put into context the, the, the speed by which this is going to happen. There's no imminent job apocalypse. These things always take, uh, you, know, you know how, the, how they say that they, 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 they happen slower than you think and then yeah. they happen faster than you expect. Right. Um, so there's, there's kind of a ramp up phase to this. So there's no imminent decline. Um, and, and in fact, the, those firms, I think, that act too quickly to get rid of people are going to be almost certainly hoist by their own petard. I mean, my favorite example of this was uh, uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, they, I don't know if you were following this. There, oh, yeah. There was that whole scandal about all of these AI-generated writers. Uh, and they even had fake profile pictures. And, you know, and, and this started because the, the CEO you know, of, of that group 
you know, had made some very public comments about he thought that most of his people were useless and weren't doing anything. And obviously, he kind of pushed aggressively to have them all replaced by robots. The irony after all of this is that most of the writers kept their jobs and he was fired, um, which is, you know, a perfect example for me is that, you know, there will be casualties of the AI revolution. They might just not be the people you expect. And they're probably a lot more senior than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think one of the most important things that you have to you have to bear in mind is, is that context that this is coming, but it's not coming necessarily as fast as you would think. Humans are still very complex and we do very complex work that are difficult to get machines to do but if you're not today already experimenting with using these tools um, becoming comfortable with them um, recognizing at a very deep level that your job is not to work your job is to design work to find a better way of doing the work of finding tools to change the nature of the work this was, as you mentioned before, when we last spoke, you know, back in 2019, this was the big theme of my book, The Algorithmic Leader. I mean, all yeah. these things hadn't happened, but but back then, even though I wrote, if you could imagine a world which AI becomes prevalent, the most useful thing you can do is not the job as it was originally designed to be do. Your job is now to think about how AI changes the nature of that job. So that advice that I gave back then, I think still, if, 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 if anything oh. else, is even more true now. Yep, yep. You know, it, it's interesting because it, it, there's so many dynamics here. And, and as, it, as you said, it gets down to how fast and how, how cognitive can you be as a human, but also the, the technology behind that to, to move forward. What excites you the most about the near-term future? I, I think the, the most exciting thing for me is that we are really – are now equipped to be able to learn anything we want uh, in a very precise and accessible way. And this is like, uh, and the reason for that is if you, if you think, you know, I always used to imagine that if you had the ultimate luxury, you'd have a private tutor, you know, in the sense of the, the wealthy aristocrats of Europe, you know, you, you never went to school or college. You basically had your own personal tutor who you would, you'd do a grand tour of Europe and they'd travel with you and you'd be, you know, uh, you, you'd be somewhere in Rome and there would be someone lecturing you, um, you know, on, on, on classical history or Latin or Greek as you were standing in the Parthenon. Or if you were a great, you know, a great leader like Alexander, you literally had Plato as your private teacher, you know, who was, who was schooling you in the classics directly. Yeah. Anyone can have this now, you know. You can basically use in an early form these, these AI tools to kind of be your guide to kind of a world of infinite knowledge. If you have the curiosity and you have the questions – and you have the passion, the ambition, and the drive, there is no limit to what you can learn. Because rather than just sort of mechanically reading through Wikipedia, you can now ask questions and follow up questions and use that to basically navigate um, kind of very complex trees of knowledge. And, and I think if that's where our starting point is after 12 months, what's this going to look like in the next 10 years? Yeah. Um, and, and of course, this is a... I think a plea that we need to transform education now, but it's also a very positive thing, which is, you know, even today, you know, a lot of the barriers towards self-learning um, are, are going away. Uh, so yes, it is frightening learning new skills, but if you even have a tiny modicum of curiosity and a willingness to kind of to embrace new ways of doing things, there's never been a better time to do it. 
It's interesting. Learning how to learn. I mean, it's very interesting that way. Well, this is what we're talking about, metacognition, right? Yeah. Thinking about thinking. What What are you most fearful of, given the, I say short term, with regard to AI and generative there's, AI there's, and where there's, we are? There's two things that, that terrify me. One we already touched on, which is the kind of misuse of uh, emotive technology. Uh, because I say humans are psychologically very weak. Uh, you know, we, we, there's, there's been a lot of research done on this. You know, we know how to we know how to be we can be nudged, we can be uh, hoodwinked, we can be conned, um, and and we also tend to anthropomorphize and we tend to worship things as gods. You know, so um, uh, I think tech geeks are particularly susceptible for the, <laughs> to this. You know, like. Uh, create, creating something that seems like a digital god and then starting to worship it. And I don't mean this in a religious sense, but really just kind or of- Or political. Could be, <laughs> could be political, but yeah, but, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm sort of specifically thinking, you know, that it won't be very difficult. And it's going to happen very soon to create something that we consider AGI, whatever that is, and then assume right. that it has feelings, you know, and that it needs to right. be given agency and autonomy or citizenship. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and it's not that this thing won't be able to trick most of the people most of the time. The question you have to ask yourself is, you know, is, is this obscene? Um, and I'm not trying to defend human values, but it's just right. that it, it, to what purpose is it to create something that is able to simulate consciousness or to trick people into thinking it's consciousness, conscious? We, that doesn't make us gods. It actually just means you've now created something that's less useful than a tool. It's like a hammer that wants to talk to you rather than hit nails. So that that's the first thing that frightens me. The second thing is is that we, out of fear and ignorance, we overregulate something before it gets started, and in doing so, we play into the hands of the large companies and platforms that have got an early start on this that have an interest in creating a regulatory barrier to other new players entering or, or leveraging open source yeah. technologies. Th those are my kind of twin fears. Very interesting. Yeah, the second one is interesting because yeah, we, on one hand, regulation is needed, but but to what degree? And, you know, again, you're, you both of them play off the fears of people. You know, yeah. the, the worshiping a... a uh, a, a, a non-human thing. Yeah, exactly. And then the other one is regulating well, that way, but it's the fear of the yeah. unknown. <clears throat> Fascism and religion, you know, are kind of these, the, 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 the twin traps of human civilization. And, and I, I, if you kind of look at the, the span of history, it, it, any new technology often uh, falls into, in, into one of those traps. So finally, beyond simply get started, <laughs> what advice do you give businesses right now to get prepared um, because I think the biggest challenge is there's a lot of priorities out there and you can test yourself into a hole and never move forward. It makes you feel good that you're doing things, but you're not really. No. And I think, I, I, I think, you know, Jim, the, the, let's, let's be frank here. The time for screwing around and, and te teaching executives how to write prompts, um, you, you know, having a workshop on how to use generative AI uh, the time for that's passed. Uh, I mean, if, frankly, if you haven't done that as an organization now, tell people to go do it at home. Don't waste time on the, on on running workshops on on using ChatGPT. Like it, it's it's just moronic. Uh, you, really, this is the point where people need to be getting together and going, okay, not just generative AI. AI what is our, our our strategy for putting AI at the core of our business? And if we don't do it, 
what is the consequences of one of our competitors putting AI at the core of their business? What would that right. look like? Um, how how would that impact us? Are we okay with being a having the valuation profile of a company that isn't AI leveraged. And honestly, for some companies, that may be okay. You know, it may be that we, we are prepared to to take this valuation profile because we're not willing to risk the capital required to chase the yeah. kind of 100x version of it. And that is an entirely reasonable strategy for the vast majority of firms, as long as it's a conscious one. Yeah. Mike, it's always very intriguing always fun. Um, I, I'm lucky this time because I actually know the next time I'll be seeing you, you're going to be at yeah. the Financial Brand Forum in May in Vegas and and going to be doing a session there. And, you know, I'll be I'll look forward to sitting down with you and say, okay, even the length of time between now and then, <laughs> what's changed in the world? Um, but it, it's, it's, it's exciting. And I, I think, you know, the opportunity is so great. And once you, you know, the, the not losing the desire to learn is uh, one of the things that keeps me going um, because I I don't want to I don't want to play my age. Didn't want to do it when I was younger. I certainly don't want to do it when I'm older. But it's interesting because there is so much out there, and now you have tools that, as you said, can can amp up that learning very quickly um, because it's all at your fingertips. It's kind of exciting, Mike. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Jim. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking and the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate the support we have received to make this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hassage, and our audio engineer and video producer, Will Pritz. If you've not already done so, remember to subscribe to Banking Transform on both your favorite podcast app and on YouTube for more thought-provoking discussions on the intersection of finance, technology, and leadership. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.